Nathan J. Phillips, and I'm a writer and sometimes editor of Speculative Fiction. Uh, and I'm very lucky because today Danny's handed me the mic to interview a couple of fantastic uh, authors who publish with Small Press, and we're really looking to try and get into some of that, uh, some of what, what that means, what it is like to be published with a smaller publisher, or as we've uh, learned to call them, a cool indie publisher. Our first author is Josh Langley, who was told he would amount to nothing in life, having failed high school twice and being unemployed for several years. But that never stopped him, as he became an award-winning radio copywriter and an award-winning author as well. His quirky and inspirational books have inspired thousands of people of all ages around the world to see life from an entirely new perspective. His most recent book, Being Wildly Kind, is his fourth in the Being You Is Enough series and is available now either at Booktopia or at joshlangley.com.au. Our second guest, Venero or Veni Armano, is the author of two short story collections, Jumping at the Moon and Travel Under Any Star, as well as nine critically acclaimed novels, including Black Mountain, The Dirty Beat, Romeo of the Underworld, and Candle Life, and has recently released his tenth, being The Crying Forest with IFWG. His novel Firehead was shortlisted in the 1999 Queensland Premier's Literary Award, and in 2002, The Volcano won the award with the Best Fiction Book of the Year. His works have been published in a number of languages, and he's also a trained screenwriter and currently teaches creative writing at the University of Queensland. Uh, Venny and Josh are fantastic guys that have a lot of uh, a lot of knowledge and experience that uh, that I certainly got a lot from, and I hope that if you stick with it, that uh, with the episode, that you get a lot from it as well. Thanks. So welcome to the podcast, uh, Venny and Josh. Look, before we get into the interview. Uh, Venny, I've just finished uh, your novel, Burning Down. Absolutely loved it. Uh, but I'm kicking myself a little bit because I didn't realise that your most recent novel, uh, The Crying Witch, is in a genre I'm far more familiar with. Uh, this one came out, uh, I believe it was about six months ago now, with uh, IFWG Australia. So to kick off, uh, why don't you give us a quick elevator pitch on uh, The Crying Forest? Um, okay, yeah. thanks. Thanks, Nathan and Josh. Hello. Great to, great to meet you. You too, um, Nathan. Um, the um, okay, so the new book is called The Crying Forest. It's a little bit of a departure for me. If you read um, if you read Burning Down, then you'll know that um, this one this one goes uh, in a in a completely different direction. Um, it's uh, it's set in the um, early 1970s in a uh, outer rural area of um, Brisbane of Brisbane, and it's about an a, an Italian witch. Um, who has lose is losing all her powers? She's very old. Uh, her husband is um, uh, emaciated and kind of he's lost all his powers as well and is close to death. And she realizes that a young witch has moved somewhere into the area who has a lot of youthful power. And um, her objective is is that if she can get that youthful power and use it for herself, then she can um, have her life back again in the life of her husband. So it's um, it's actually based on Italian mythologies and uh, folk legends um, from the Friulian area of um, of Europe, uh, where witches and were- werewolves uh, used to do battle for um, uh, you know how the how agriculture would grow in certain seasons. Um, if the bad witches won, then agriculture was bad, the crop was bad. If the good witches won, then, um, the, then the crops were good. And so I decided to try and take um, th- those kinds of 
folklorish legends and bring them to Brisbane and see if I could do um, something interesting with it. I'll just finish with this. Um, a, a reader um, gave a really good elevator pitch for it, which is better than anything that I can say. And she said, um, the crime forest is uh, the wicker man meets true detective. So that's, there you go. That's my pitch. That's fantastic. And I've got to say, I, I did love Burning Down as well. Um, I do normally read more speculative fiction. So um, I read it and it was very much a breath of fresh air in regards to what I normally read. Um, but yeah, absolutely loved it. Mm, and on the topic of something a little bit different, um, Josh, you've got a slightly different um, sort of genre or workings there. And look, I've, I've got to say, after seeing some of the books and the messages that you get across in that, it's the, they're the sort of books that I wish were around when I was a kid about, you know, being happy with just who you are and it's all right to be a little bit mm -hmm. different sometimes and very much so, uh, stories that I'm glad are around for, for my kids um, because they are a little bit different. We have a very, very interesting and lively household with um, both of my kids uh, have ASD and oh, okay. um, we call it their superpowers uh, because there are things that they can do that, just mind-blowing and it's a great That's great way to look at it nathan superpowers for asc i love that thanks josh uh, look that's not, not not to take away from the the challenges that sometimes come along with this kind of thing as well but uh, we just like to celebrate the uh the things that make them uniquely them and, and some of the strengths which ties in nicely with your series that you've uh, you're doing at the moment being yourself is enough which is a really important message um obviously i'm sold on it um do you want to give us a quick uh, quick pitch on that one yeah, look, Nathan, the, the series is the Being You Was Enough series. It started out as just one book, which was Being You yeah. Was Enough. And then the publishers said, look, Josh, can you write another one? And I'm going, oh, okay, I can, I can do another one. So these are specifically for kids. And the second one was called It's Okay to Feel the Way You Do, all about feelings. And then I thought, okay, well, let's do a third one. Let's do a third one in the series. So it was Magnificent Mistakes and Fantastic Failures, Finding the Good When Things Seem Bad. And that one came out last year, right in the middle of the, well, the beginning of the pandemic. And so um, uh, the irony was not lost to me writing a, releasing a book about failures in the middle of a pandemic. It, you know, went down really, really well. And I've just released the new ones just come out or about to come out shortly called Being Wildly Kind, Finding the Magical Power Inside. And there are all these books that I suppose people have had trouble trying to go, what are they? Well, they're exactly, they don't have a storyline. They're just me talking to kids about what's what really is important. And um, one of the things that I suppose I call them is, is I hate to say it, it's a bit cringeworthy, but self-help books for kids. So they're, so I illustrate them, I, I write them, and it's just me talking directly to kids about what I think. Well, it's actually what I wanted to know when I was an eight-year-old kid. So I like what you said earlier, Nathan, it's just basically what I wanted to know when I was eight, I put these in these books and put them out there for kids now. And I find a lot of parents I love reading them as well because they go, this is what I wanted to hear too. So so it's sort of very much universally loved by my kids, um, parents, and I find a lot of psychologists, child psychologists use them, OTs, speech pathologists, and I've just heard word that, you know, um, Perth Children's Hospital, their psych department uses them as well, so it's great. Oh, that's fantastic. And like I said, these are definitely books that, you know, I wish had been around when I was younger. And, um, it's, yeah, as you said, it's not just books for kids, you know. Uh, I know that Danny's got this strong uh, sort of passion for picture books not just being for kids but being for adults as well. And mm. you fit the nail on the head there where it's, it's all about that communication between the two. Uh, so both of you go through um, small publishers, uh, UKP, IFWG, and uh, Big Sky Publishing, um, I believe it is for Josh. Uh, 
what is it about the the small publishers that that sort of put you onto that path as opposed to going either self-publish or the, the the sort of the larger you know do it all for you style um, publishers that are out there? Well, for me, it's um, it's with big, with big. I, I actually approached the the big publishers first. I had a list of five publishers with my first book. And I got rejected by the first three and I found Big Sky Publishing online because someone said, follow all these people and all these publishers on Facebook and Twitter. So I did. And then I started interacting with Big Sky Publishing and asked them, you know, I've got a, I've got a great book idea, yada, yada, yada. And then they just said, well, send it to here. And, and I did and um, com- instantly forgot about it. And then I got a phone, phone call about, you know, about three weeks later saying we're really, really keen on the manuscript and we want to create a series of books, yada, yada, yada. I went, oh, holy hell. Okay, that's exciting. And so, and it, because, and that was 10 years ago because I've written nine books with, with um, Big Sky Publishing. And it was because I've, I've developed such a strong relationship with them. And it's sort of like, as, as a lot of people know, once you're with a publisher, it's easy to repitch another book back to them. And, um, and as they have grown I have grown as well. So we've sort of grown together, even though they're, you know, still relatively small. I like to call them a cool indie publisher, Nathan, as opposed to a small yep. publisher. That's my, yep. that's how I say it. <laughs> but, um, sounds good to me. and yeah, and it's just, just watching them grow and watching me grow. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of really nice. And there's a really strong loyalty there that I think might be missing from a lot of the other big, big publishing houses. But I've certainly, found that some of the smaller and the independent um, publishers, they've got a bit more leeway to do passion projects as well, which yes. can, you know, really bright out and really uh, emphasise these ones. So what about yourself, uh, Danny? What's your experience with, you know, or what, what drove you to, to, um, to look at small publishers as an option? Well, um, I come from a slightly slightly different background. I've, um, I've been with uh, really big publishers um, since I've been writing, I've been publishing for about 30 years now. So um I was, I've been published by Pan Macmillan, uh, Knopf, uh, you know, Random House, Picador. Um, I've forgotten. I've forgotten a few. I think. Anyway, um, and you know, the experience with them is fant- is fantastic. So before before I start talking about the cool indie publishers, which is absolutely <laughs> what we should call them from now on, um, I just want to say that the experiences that I had with the big publishers um, were absolutely brilliant. But what it was was that um, that was in the era of money being around, and in the nineties, um, I remember very vividly being um, driven, uh, sorry, flying around Australia, and you know, staying in nice hotels, and um, you know, having lovely meetings, lunch meetings in exotic restaurants um, set up with uh, journalists and things like that. So hell things have changed a hell of a lot. Things have changed a hell of a lot. Um, so. When um, I approached, um, sorry, when I was first published by UQP, they actually did my very, very first book in 1991. And then I went to the big publishers. I came back to, I came back to UQP because, um, you know, just getting, getting published again and again and again and again with the big publishers, if you're not selling thousands upon thousands of copies of books, is just really, really hard. Um, but when I um, went to UQP with, um, uh, you know, the book that you mentioned, Burning Down, but before that, the very first one with them was um, uh, The Dirty Beat. There's been The Dirty Beat, yep. uh, Black Mountain and um, Burning Down. Um, they could 
they could make their um, figures work with you know the the decrease in sales that all um, all, pub, all all writers have experienced from the 90s to the early 2000s to you know 2010 and into 2020. Just everybody's unless unless you're like you know a really big name, you, you're just not selling what you used to sell in the 90s, and that's that's a fact. And I guess you know it's it's embarrassing to say that, but it's it's really just the truth. So UQP were able to put together um, you know their own internal their own internal um, figures so that it so that it worked for them. But I have to say that. Um, with UQP being smaller than, say, uh, Random House or, um, uh, you know, some of the other publishers that I was with, the service and the product and the way it was marketed was really no, absolutely no different. In fact, um, it, seemed, it seemed almost the same. The only thing that was different was that the marketing budget was lower. But when I spoke to some of my writer friends, you know, when you go around writers festivals and things like that, and you talk about, you know, what's the marketing budget like? What have they got you doing for your new book? Um, a lot of writers were using their own credit card to get on planes and go to, you know, the Sydney Writers Festival or the Melbourne Writers Festival. And they were organizing their own um, uh, media sort of blitz. So, um, it really, it really wasn't that much of a change. And anyway, for for me with UQP because we're all, because we're in Brisbane, um, it's much easier for me to have meetings with them. You know, like I, you know, they're just down the road basically. If I want to have a coffee with them, um, the the meetings with um, the publishers based in Sydney and Melbourne was a lot harder. I've got to say that sounds like an absolutely brilliant experience. Um from the 90s there of the, the lunches and travel no, and all that sort of look it was yeah. it was and and i and i have to say that i wasn't in the to, in the top tier so you know i was um you know i'd always talk uh, to you know people in green rooms and stuff like that and you know they'd show you their itineraries and you know what rooms they were staying in in what five what five star hotels and you'd think, oh wow, <laughs> you know, if I sell another twenty thousand copies, maybe I could, maybe I can have that. But um, you know, those were interesting days. But they're, but they're pretty much gone, except for that. I think that top five percent now. Yeah. So I just want to take that um, that that ability to meet and that willingness to meet and everything as well, because uh, you're in a bit of a different situation there, um, Josh, over in WA. There's, I think your bias is seven and a half acres. Uh, that's what make, what's making yep. me jealous at the moment. <laughs> um, all to yourself. Um, uh, I suppose, how have you found the, the willingness of um, small publisher? I mean, this is, again, something that I'm, I'm drawing on a little bit of um, experience, but mostly just what I've read from the outside about that, that, that loyalty and that, um, mm. that willingness to make things work um, for the author. Um, because, you know, they're the lifeblood of the, uh, the cool indie publishers. Um, how have you found particularly in the modern age uh, electronics, you know, you, you can Zoom, you can call. Have you found that's actually impacted? Has it opened up um, options for you or is it, you know, oh, do, are there publishers that just don't want to or what's the, how's that impacted you? As, as far as I'm concerned, it's opened up a whole lot of new opportunities. I mean, the fact that, that when I, you know, went with Big Sky, what, nearly 10 years ago now, and we Zoom wasn't around then, so we just did everything over the phone. And it didn't seem to, to change anything. I mean, I hadn't met my main editor, Diane, until about five years, five years ago. And it was like, okay. So I hadn't actually met them in person, but we still had this great working relationship. And um, 
And they, the actual, the publisher doesn't actually, they never really had an office because they, they were basically family owned business. So they were working out of um, a part of their house when they were living in Sydney. And um, they had a, uh, sort of one of the office workers working from home, working remotely. And, but now they actually literally are all working remotely in the entire publishing house, completely one there, one there, one there, one there, but it doesn't affect how they actually work. They work cohesively as a team and it actually, it, it, it's more effective than ever. So, um, so I think the remoteness for me over here has made no difference whatsoever. And, um, and when I do get to meet them, it's even more exciting because then we, we have champagne and celebrate and have one of those long liquid lunches. Excellent. So it makes it, yeah, that um, more of an event to actually meet. Um, yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's fantastic. And a um, li- little bit of a, um, a change. I just wanted to, you know, when you, as you mentioned, Josh, you were looking at going big publishers and then you found the mm. cool indies. Um, Benny, you've worked with both as well. Um, what are the looking for prospective author, uh, authors out there, the writers who are sending in their submissions and everything? Is there anything that you found that has been a bit more of a, um, a challenge or an obstacle that you didn't expect on on that side that uh, maybe you would have, if you had been in their position and hearing this interview, that you maybe would have liked to, uh, to know beforehand? Well, I've, um, after UQP, as it, at- um, the, the book that I was talking about, The Crying Forest, is with another really small, really small organisation called IFWG Australia and IFWG uh, International. And, you know, they are specialists in this particular genre. So um, I had an introduction to them. Um, I, I actually didn't know. Uh, I, I didn't know them beforehand, but I had an introduction to them through a very... Um, very well-known um, science fiction and fantasy writer um, who said, because I was talking to him about um, The Crying Forest, and I said, look, I just don't think the major publishers are going to go for this. And he said, well, that's good, because what you really should be doing is approaching people who specialise in this particular area. And I'd never really, I'd never really thought of it that way before. Um, so when I sent the manuscript to um, the, the, the guy who runs IFWG, um, I had a recommendation from another author, which was, you know, a, a big plus for me. But also, without knowing it, I'd hit his um, his actual hot buttons. You know, these this was exactly the type of book, or you know, within the within the ballpark of the type of book that he that he really wanted to publish. So, with with all these um, approaches, with any approach to to a publisher, you really um, what we, what we always emphasize, I guess, is that you've got to know what they do and what they've mm. published and what their particular interests are. You know, um, I did send The Crying Forest um, to, um, you know, the publishers that I know, um, you know, because I've got a lot of contacts. And all of them said, oh, no, 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 Supernatural, we, we just don't do that. And, we, and even if we did try to do it, we wouldn't do it well. And so you've, you've got to try and, and find the people who you know, who are passionate about the type of thing, you know, like with Josh's books, you know, you can, I can tell from, from what Josh is saying that your publishers at Big Sky are, are just passionate. And so they will get behind you a hundred percent because it's not just the project, but it's them, you know, to them, this is mm. us, you're mm. representing us, you know, this is who we want to be. And so with IFWG, it's the same thing. The Crying Forest is a book that means something to them because they're trying to say, look world, 
this is who we are. This is what we, this is what we would really like to publish. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you there because it's, it's, it, it is finding that whatever genre you're in, find the publisher that really loves that genre and publishes that genre really well. And, um, and I think with, with regards to me and Bigger Sky Publishing, there are not many other publishers out there that would take on the books that I write. And um, as what Nathan said before, it's like they can have a little bit of a passion project, but then that you don't know where that passion project can actually go. Once you've found that niche and you've, and you've got the energy behind it, you've got the passion from the publisher, you've got the passion from the editor, everyone, the sales team, and they go for this product and push it out there, you just never know what can happen. And it can actually have a bigger effect than if you may have gone to a bigger publisher and sort of, you know, and sort of been maybe left on the back burner a bit or something like that. So, so that's one of the advantages of actually going to a cool indie publisher. Um, the, the, the big publishers will do everything that they can to promote your book and get it out there. But if it doesn't, if it doesn't start moving, there's yeah. the next name and there's the next, you know, there's the next slate of books. And I, I've found that um, with big publishers, I always used to tell my friends, you, you got two weeks, <laughs> two weeks of really solid marketing. And, yeah. and, you know, for two weeks, you feel like the most loved author on the planet. But if it hasn't taken off within those two weeks, it's hasta, hasta la vista. So um, uh, the smaller publishers, if, I, if you don't mind, I'll just tell you this. Um, the same thing happened yeah, with me is that I hadn't met the publishers until Supernova at the Gold Coast last month. And I'd never been, I, sorry, I've been, to, I've been to Supernova for years and years and years um, because my boy used to love getting dressed up as, you know, his favourite Marvel character and stuff like that. But then yes, I, totally I had a publisher who actually put me on the panel and, you know, like to go from being an audience member to actually getting the badge that says VIP and having people come up to you and say, who are you? Can I have your signature? I'm nobody, but yeah, I'll sign. You know, it, was, it, was, it was really, really lovely. And that's, that's something else that a passionate um, publisher can do is they can get you into the avenue where your book is actually meant to be. Supernova for me, I don't know what it is for you, Josh, but do you know what I mean? They, oh, they mm. know how to approach the particular um, niche that is where your book hopefully will, uh, will sell. I totally agree with that. Perfect example for mine will be because um, with my publisher, they initially weren't in kids' books. They were more military titles. But as soon as they went into kids' books, they really researched it and they brought on board education experts, school teachers, librarians, and they, then they learned how to actually push the books mm. into the education sector, into the school system. And so you had that kind of knowledge, that, that passion, that drive. Because, I mean, we all want to sell books. That's the what it really comes down to. But when your publisher is interested in selling books as well and finding all the different avenues and the different niches of where you can fit into, it, the whole thing just synchronistically works beautifully. Yeah, that's amazing, Josh. That's mm. amazing. They'd never been in children's books before. No. I think oh. me and uh, I think I was one of the first and maybe a couple of other authors, but now they're actually quite a, becoming quite strong in the kids' book market in, in Australia, which is great. So here's the, the big one. For yourself knowing like having had that experience both with the big publishers and the smaller publishers um i mean again this is this is all about looking at the publishing side of things for people who are prospective going into is there is there anyone that you think maybe might small publishers might suit or that um perhaps even you know that, that big publishers might suit but is, is there a particular direction that um might give people a better a uh, better experience or uh, more of an advantage going one way or the other 
Uh, I think, look, I, I think that in, in general, you would say that, you know, writers or new writers would probably come up with their wish list of who they want to be published by. And, and again, you know, you go back to that idea of um, researching the publishers who publish in the area that you're interested in, you know, that you, that you feel like you're writing in. And so, you know, in most cases, it'll be that um, writers will want to go with the big publishers because, you know, there's just a hell of a lot more security associated with that. So you usually, you usually go down the list but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going from, you know, good to bad. It just means you're going to different di different types of publishers. So, you know, say for example, if you've written a crime novel, you know, just just as a just as an example, let's, um, you know, you'd go to the publishers who've done really well in Australia with crime novels, and you know, a, a lot of the big ones have, you know, Alan and Unwin, you know, um, uh, Random House, uh, Penguin, you know, they've they've all done done extremely well with, especially with, you know, the more literary type crime novel but if they're not interested you know if they if for, for whatever reason they feel that you know your book doesn't fit into their particular the particular niche then you'd go to um then you'd start looking at the you'd start researching the uh independent publishers and the smaller publishers who have published in the crime area and you know some of the some of the things that you know might be on your wish list would be things like um you know we all want to be published but um are they going to offer an advance? What kind of print runs do they run? What kind of print runs do they do? Uh, do they print in Australia or overseas? Do they do eBooks? Do they have an affiliation with audiobook companies? Um, uh, how how do they get their books? Distribution is a big is a really really big issue. How if you go with a smaller publisher, um, do they have a do, do they have an agreement with a distributor? Um, a good enough distributor that they can get your books into the bookshops that you really want them to get into, you know, the, the brick and mortar bookshops, but also the big places like, um, you know, the book depository and whatever, whatever, whatever else exists, Amazon. For writers, we've still got to get our books out there. So we, we will rely on them. And so a lot of, I guess what I'm trying to say is that a lot of um, the smaller publishers don't have those distribution networks in place and they might sell only from their website. And that's okay, but you just kind of got to know that in advance, if you know what I mean. You've you've got to got to know what is the playing field that I'm that I'm looking at, and there's and there's and there are many many variables. So I, I guess I can give you an example, a live example right now, and that is um, the publisher of um, the Crying Forest, my new book. Um, I've said you know they're really great. They know their niche. Uh, this is their area. They publish in all English speaking um, countries. They're very good at getting books into the online retailers, okay? But they don't, they're only now starting to have the distribution network in place where they can actually get your books into say the big Dimmix stores or the big stores yeah. like that. So that's a kind of new thing for them. The other thing is, is that they don't have any marketing. The only marketing arm that they have is themselves on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, okay? So I'm used to coming from the big publishers like, you know, Random House or whoever who have a big marketing department. Independent publishers might not have a, might not have a marketing department or might only have one person. So this time around, I went and found myself a, um, a book marketing freelancer 
and paid that person to do my book marketing for me so that we could still find a way to approach all the traditional avenues for, you know, how you would get articles and um, newspapers or, you know, in magazines or to, you know, get reviewers to receive the book and, and, um, and do reviews. So, you know, that's a long answer to uh, what you asked, but I, I guess it's because it's in my zeitgeist at the moment. I've just been dealing with all of this in the last six months. And, you know, it's been a, it's been a real learning process for me as well, you know, to go, oh, okay, I'm actually in a different sort of world. It's a really good world, but there are things that I've got to do myself that I that I'm not used to uh, that I'm not that I'm not used to having to do. Yeah, I guess that sort of goes a, a couple of ways. I've spoken to a couple of um, uh, independent or um, self-published uh, authors recently, and for them, they really enjoyed that that control over um, marketing and over the different ways of doing it, having that um, that opportunity to do it themselves. But on the other hand, it is an extra responsibility and it's an extra something that you've got to do. So yeah, as long as you know it beforehand. Sorry, go ahead. No, go on, go on. You finish what you're going to say. I was just going to say, uh, as long as you know beforehand what that playing field is, then yeah. I guess you can weigh up those, um, you know, whether or not it is a positive to have control or whether or not that extra responsibility is something you can handle. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I, the way I approach it is that, you know, the publisher has invested in me and invested in my book. And so um, I feel like I need to invest as well, you know, like it, it, I feel like it's part of the handshake agreement, you know, that we do this stuff. Um, I do have to say, though, um, some people are really, really good with their personal marketing and their social media and stuff like that. And I'm utterly hopeless, utterly, utterly I'm, hopeless. I'm in the same same boat as that. So yeah. it's one of those things I look at what some people do and they've got everything set out. They've got these spreadsheets. And as soon as I see it, my mind just, my brain turns to mush. Um, yeah. But, you know, a lot of time and respect for those people who can yeah. do that. I know it's it, it is it is actually incredible, but um, you know I I really dislike being on social media. I don't I don't I don't naturally follow lots of people. I I I'm I'm really the the look at look at my room. I'm the traditional author who really likes to stay in their room, but you know that's um, that's a being a bit spoiled, a bit selfish. Yeah. Really, you you, you kind of you have to like I say you have to you have to give something back as well. You have to help the publisher. You've got to help the publisher to be able to help you. Yeah, and, and yeah, I, I guess that's another thing that, um, you know, makes a real sort of two-way partnership side of things, as you were saying before. But one thing I do want to mention is because people aren't going to be able to see this, um, when oh. you mentioned look at my room, I want to describe it because for me, it looks amazing. Uh, you know, as, as I've mentioned before, my room is a bunch of boxes at the moment because we literally moved into this house today. What I'm seeing on the screen is uh, a, just a wall full of bookshelves in the background, I think that's a desk that's uh, over in the shadows. It's got, you know, books and bags of books and stuff on it. Um, the nice, is that a red red carpet? Nice, you know, bit of a uh, bit of class there as well. That's a bit, um, of, a, and then, that's a bit of a couch. Yeah. Oh, okay. So a bit of a couch. A but, um, <laughs> even better. But the best part about this is because um, we had the, the nice lighting and everything, and I mentioned that this is going to be audio only. So um, we turned the lights off and everything. So I've just got all this darkness surrounding uh, yourself, Benny. And it's a very, it, it very much gives a, um, I don't even know what the right word is, an atmosphere. Um, and the crying forest certainly seems to fit that kind of atmosphere. Came out of this room, <laughs> of this yeah. room believe me. Yeah. Um, it's oh. so dark, you can't actually see my electric guitar in the corner, can you? I saw that yesterday, but, oh, sorry, not yesterday, when we spoke yeah. before. Um, and yeah, I was going to ask about that as well. There's a, a fantastic article by Lisa Kenway who writes uh, Psychological Suspense and uh, 
had a uh, as well as short fiction, and she was uh, re- well, I think twenty twenty, she was shortlisted for the Rochelle Prize. Uh, but she writes about creativity as a whole. So when, when writing doesn't work, jumping across to something else, and you know Valerie Koo, who was on the podcast a few episodes back, spoke about doing creative dates and that sort of thing as well. Uh, I'm wondering how how that creativity with the uh, the musician sort of side of things, uh, and obviously you've got your academics um, side of things as well, which I keep trying to tell people is just another type of art, being able to craft things into an academic argument. I'm just wondering, you know, how that plays for yourself with, you know, you've got a few different genres, you've got a few different stories out there. Um, how does that, I suppose, that, that those other creative sides play into um, your, your writing, your, your mm. fiction creativity? Um uh, that's a that's a really good question, and I'm a, I'm a bit I'm a bit sad to have to answer it the way that I'm going to answer it because um, you know being a full time academic doesn't leave a lot of space for a lot of other stuff. You know, no matter what people say, yeah. uh, the academic life is is very is incredibly intense and takes up a lot of uh, takes up a lot of time and it takes up a lot of energy. Not that I'm complaining. I, I actually I actually really really love uh, my job. And that's not just because I think my boss will be, will be listening. I actually really, really <laughs> love my job. But, um, you know, before, before I entered academia, I would definitely um, do things like write a short story, write a novel, write a screenplay, write a few songs on the guitar, um, you know, and, and, and be very much in that sort of circle of, circle of things and, and shift between them. I remember, um, I remember um, speaking to a, another writer who said that um, uh, she had separate desks for all her separate, you know, for for writing um, prose, she had a desk for writing um, young adult, young adult stuff. In fact, it was more like children's stuff. She had another desk, and then she had another desk where she would do her art, and then she had another desk where she would um, where she had a, an electric keyboard set up. It was like a, like a big circle in her in her thing. But for me now, I, I just don't have the time to do. I, I just don't have the time or the energy to do all of those. So it's either one or the other. It's it's either putting the time and effort into the creative writing or putting the time and effort into uh, the university stuff. Which, as you say, I do agree with you. Is in especially when it comes to lectures and things like that is incredibly creative and needs to be or else you're just going to be bore people to death <laughs> do you know what i mean and yeah, i'm pretty I'm... sure i'm pretty sure my students no matter what they would say about my courses i don't know whether they'd say they're good or bad i'm pretty sure they would say that they're not boring <laughs> excellent yeah we um uh, I, I certainly remember from uh when i did the in person because most of my uni has been uh, online but um, when we did the in-person ones, it was, um, yeah, let's just say there were certain ones in which we paid attention and there were ones where it was just information on a board to be written down and, you know, right. really could have been delivered in a PowerPoint slide. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then, you know, they, it makes a difference. You retain the knowledge from those ones, but you're actually engaged and uh, takes a bit of creativity. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. again, sort of a, a little bit off, off the topic of publishing itself and more talking about yourself. Um, can you tell us what the path to publishing was like for you? Because you've had, I think it's, was it nine novels um, or critically acclaimed novels that you've had out now? Or is this? I think The Crying Forest is number 11 or 12. Okay. But that might include the two anthologies of short stories. And I've got three small books for younger readers, but the, which, which I wrote in the 90s. I, I, I don't specialise in that area at all. I kind of, I loved doing it at the time, but then I realised, you know, that that just wasn't my area. You know, I was going to concentrate on the adult, adult stuff. Um, look, you know, 
um, some people know this story, um, but uh, for for people who are listening to the podcast who don't, um, I've just told this story so many times. Um, I wrote my first novel when I was in first year law at university, when I was failing first year law. I wrote a uh, Stephen King vampire novel about a, you know my background as a Sicilian child of Sicilian migrants. So my vampire was a Sicilian migrant um, who comes to Australia um, and has a lair at the University of Queensland. We've got beautiful lakes at Queensland, at the University of Queensland. His lair was underneath the University of Queen, uh, under the lakes. And uh, I had no real plot other than I was studying law. And so he would come out during the day, during the night and kill law students. That was basically the plot. And in the end, he, he got bored and committed suicide. I don't think I've ever read of a, um, a vampire who got, got bored with his life and committed suicide, but that was, that was my book which I thought was genius, right? So I wrote that when I was um, in first year, first year law and uh, it, didn't, um, it didn't get published, funnily enough. <laughs> funnily enough, it didn't get published. And so I realized that I had to learn, that I knew nothing and that I had to learn. So I, I discovered that the Australian Vogel Literary Prize existed and it was for authors under the age of 35. And so I thought, you know, only a young person can think like this. Well, I'll write a book a year and keep sending it to the um, Australian Vogel Literary Prize until I win it, <laughs> right? Yep. So that's what I did. I kept, yep. I, I, I think that for 10 successive years, I sent them a, man, a, a new book um, wow. in the hope of, um, in the hope of um, getting published. In 1986, um, they didn't give a prize because they said everybody wasn't up to standard. And I remember thinking, even in the year when they can't, when they don't want to give it to, when everyone else is crap, I still can't get published. Um, but I, I eventually got um, uh, shortlisted and I came along, the, they told me, they told me this, and I'll never forget this. They said, you came second, but it was a long way second, right? And right, yeah. the person who came, the person who won that year, um, one with a story called um, Lillian's, sorry, it was called Bee's Story and then became Lillian's Story. And that was Kate Grenville's first book. So oh, wow. I lost I lost out to Kate Grenville, who I still mm. hold a grudge against. <laughs> <laughs> and you can tell her this story when you get her on. Um, I, I did a I did a uh, in conversation with her at the Brisbane Writers Festival yeah. and I told her this story and I told her how much I hated her and she, la she laughed her head off. Anyway, so I, I published, sorry, I wrote about 10 unpublished novels before I had my first real work published. So it was a very, very long, it was a very, very long road, very, very long and arduous uh, road. Very dedicated road. Yeah. Well, I just knew no better. Um, in yeah, that decade, um, yeah, in that decade of the eighties, I had having written a million words over 10 novels because they were all about a hundred thousand words each. Uh, in that whole decade of the 1980s, I had two short stories published, and both of them earned me $50 each. So for that decade, I earned $100 as a writer, which at the moment is seeming pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty hard to make any money as a writer again. I think it was, um, was it Stephen King um, who was saying that if you get paid you know, a dollar to, uh, to write or publish a story, that's all you need. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Previously, we've had uh, artists or um, we've had uh, writers talk about how 
getting out and doing something creative that's not writing can sometimes help them with their writing and help them with that that creativity. Um, just wondering if um, doing the illustrations and that sort of side of things, whether or not there's any part of that that resonates with your process or whether it's just focus on the writing and, and how you, you work through that. Um, I, for me, the, the writing is, is the is the least amount of it, really. It's, it's all the bits that goes around. Because obviously writing kids' books, I'm not like Benny is sitting there um, churning out word after word. I, you know, it takes me, you know, maybe maybe like a couple of days to actually write the text for a kid's book. And then you spend the rest of the time editing it and going through it and ripping it apart and putting it back together again. And then you spend about another, you know, a couple of weeks drawing the illustrations. But really, that's it. Doesn't take that much. Um, all the rest of it is the is the business of being a writer that goes around it, and that I find that is actually an, a great release from the the stress of having to be creative in that regard from actually writing the book and and illustrating it. Actually, it could be coming up with a blog post. It could be coming up with a social media post. It could be doing the tax, or it could be all any number of things around being a writer and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. And um, it, it's something that when I was spoken to some of the self-published uh, authors, they talk about it being a business as a writer and treating it like a business. And it sounds like that's actually, for me, who's not a business person, um, it's slightly terrifying, <laughs> but it sounds like it can actually be a release as well if, if you've got the right sort of, um, uh, well, I suppose, interest in it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think because I wanted to be a writer or illustrator or be in this field, I realised that, all the other things have to happen around it and you've got to be involved in that. You can't just, for me, you just can't sit back and go, I'm, I'm just going to write a book and let everything else happen. No, you've got to be out there sort of, you know, promoting yourself, creating your author brand, putting that forward, making connections, collaborating with people. All that is all, is all part of it. And, I've, and that's the bit that I really enjoy as well. So that's something that actually ties in with what we were talking about earlier as well with small publishers, potential, oh, sorry, um, cool indie publishers, potentially <laughs> suiting, uh, didn't forget, um, suiting people a little better and some, you know, then some people might be better suited to big publishers and some people might be better suited to, um, to just doing things independently. Is there anything about that that maybe you would, um, I suppose that people could take into account and go, well, maybe I'm better suited to a small publisher mm. and perhaps having that independence or having that control over um, the social media side, the advertising side, uh, you know, getting your author brand out there, whether or not that would actually leave people more suited to a certain type of publisher. So it's a very long-winded question, that one, isn't it? <laughs> I, for me, um, I would say if you're a bit of a control freak, <laughs> like I am, well, I think I, I didn't realise I was until I actually, you know, started to realise, oh, okay, I'm, I'm actually controlling a lot of this. Um, maybe a smaller publisher is good because you, you do have to do a lot of the stuff yourself. Like a lot of you creating your author brand, um, creating everything around everything. Like a, in a lot of the promotion for your book, obviously your your publisher does does what they do and what they need to do. And you've got to partner with them to do what you do to reach different sections and sectors and stuff like that. So, but I think, I mean, I don't know. I haven't had an experience with a, with a major publisher. I don't know what sort of involvement that an author would would need to do um but i don't think just guessing it wouldn't be as much as what what i would be doing with my smaller sort of smaller publisher even though they do a lot it's just you know maybe it's just me i just like to get my hands dirty and get involved with with yeah. the bigger publishers you know they they'll present you with a, a marketing document and a marketing plan 
and come up with a um, itinerary of what they've got, what they've got, what they've been able to put together for you. So it is, you know, you 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 always have the opportunity to say, you know, these are the contacts that I've had in the past, or these are people who've done really good reviews of my work, or whatever. But you know, they do all the legwork. You don't mm. do the ringing around and sending the emails. And that's what I was talking to Nathan about just a little bit before, you know, the big difference between, you know, having been published at the majors and going to um, something smaller is that you end up doing all of that yourself, the, the stuff that you're talking about, Josh. And, you know, it's really good that you're good at that and that you really like it. I, I don't. I just, I, you know, I, I just don't have the social media kind of savvy and I'm not interested mm. in it. Like I don't, I don't, um, I don't follow a lot of people. Like I don't get anything out of it. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I'd rather just go and read a book than you know. Don't you, but don't don't you go? Well, if I want to if I want to sell more books and make more of a living out of it, I need to be doing this. Is, is yeah, that, yeah. So does that happen? That's, yeah, yeah. That's that's kind of what I mentioned before. Was that you know you kind of come to that realization and and you know especially in the situation I'm in, I'm in at the moment with this wonderful new publisher, is I realized that I really had to invest in it, and um, I told Nathan. I, I hired my own um, book marketing person for a couple of weeks and she's been working. She's only just finished. Um, mm. I think, I, I think, I think I got it for about a month really. And um, she used a lot of her contacts. Um, and she's done a lot of book marketing. It's not like just a general yeah. PR person, but somebody who knows the Australian literary um, um, milieu. So, but you know, boy, I'll tell you what it cost. <laughs> but I think it, it'll it'll pay itself off though, won't it? We hope so. <laughs> I don't know like, you. It's all I, about I the investment. So. Yeah, it's an um, investment. It's an yeah. investment, and and I don't know. And but I I kind of treated it like that as well. I thought, mm. look, I'm going to treat this as an investment, and I've never done this before, so I'll do it. I'll I'll go in boots and all. I'll find somebody. I'll you know get them to do all this stuff for me. Um, I'll set up all these different talks all over the place, and we'll see. If we end up, if I end up ever getting a royalty check for the crying forest or not, you know, you try. That's that's the thing, isn't it? Well, live and learn. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I've already learned a, a huge amount by by just being associated with a marketing person on a day to on in a business relationship sense, rather than being involved with a marketing person with a publishing company who just kind of you know pays the um, taxi dockets for you and takes you around and introduces you. Here we have I want one of them. Yeah, they're great. I tell you, I tell you, you'll feel loved for two weeks. You will feel loved. And then you'll feel like, where did they go? <laughs> I have heard that in certain places, um, you're an absolute genius. It's just how certain marketing types say hello. Um, <laughs> I suppose the, the next one, uh, area is spoken a little bit about um, Benny's avenue to publishing. Um, we spoke a little bit about your background as well and the background that is in your bio about um, mm. I think it opens up with that you were kicked out of school or something like that or uh, yeah failed high school yeah and we we're talking about how that's impacted your writing um then he understand that you know, as you mentioned before you've got that uh you're a child of sicilian um uh, immigrants and a lot of your writing you know when we when i was reading um burned down um yeah so when i was reading that one you've got you know charlie smoke uh, and, and diego both coming from um italian backgrounds as well so I'm just wondering about how your backgrounds have um, have influenced your writing uh, and, and influenced how you go about you know, the stories and the types of stories you tell. And we want to start with Josh because you already spoke a little bit with me. Okay, okay. Let's go with that. 
I, I, I personally, for me, because I failed high school and I did it, failed it twice, so I was very good at failing high school. And I actually even failed English, which is a, which is a great sort of little underscore for my story. But it, it's when I, I, cause I got into radio copywriting um, around about five years or so after failing school. And I didn't, and because it's copywriting is such a simple process, it is, especially for radio, it's like 75 words and that's it. And so because I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a great scope of the English language, actually working with, with as few words as possible, using sound effects and stuff to tell a story, it became the art of telling a story more than the actual using the language, which is, I don't know if that makes sense or not. No, so I got, I got really good at telling stories in as few words as possible. And then that beautifully translated to writing kids' books, even though that, strangely enough, my kids' books don't have stories, but it's the word economy that came out of being a copywriter and been in advertising really paid off to writing kids' books. I knew how to use few words as possible, and each word had to count on the page. It had to earn its place. And I think those that advertising background in kids' books, people go, how are they married up? How do you have to get that connection? And but it's the word economy and using the skills of actually editing to make every word count was the was the really good benefit for me. Peter Carey uh, comes from an advertising background too, doesn't he? Yes, even Bryce Courtney. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it's not a lot that... of a lot of copywriters ended up writing books. Right. Mm. I have to admit, I'm, I'm a little bit in awe of what you've told us today, Josh, about um, it takes a couple of days to write the text for, uh, <laughs> for a storybook, you know, you know, fewer words, that just makes it easier. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm sure that he understands where I'm coming from when I say anything less than 100,000 words is has to be edited down and is very difficult for uh, for some of us to do. So um, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah, quite envious of your, uh, your talents and skills. Well, hey, Josh, what, 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 my not, sorry, my nonfiction books, I, I can barely write any more than 50,000 words for my nonfiction because I just I just struggle because I'm so used to word economy and writing short sentences and stuff. I go, I, don't, I can't flesh this out anymore. And I, people that write 100,000 words go, oh, my God, I bow down to you. And, hey, Josh, um, I just wanted to tell you, I failed, um, I failed school as well. So, ah, um, well I, done, Vinny. Yeah, I, I uh, failed grade 11. So um, I, I repeated grade 11. At another school, I changed schools, and um, and in repeating, I kind of got a little bit better. But then I went to uni and um, started law and failed that, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then um, went into psychology and just barely barely scraped through. I think they just let me go let me go through because they felt sorry for me. Did your psychology uh, degree inform your writing? Ah. Uh, Look, I don't know. I, I, I really don't know because I didn't, it was an undergraduate degree. I didn't do honours. So I didn't go into it into that much yeah. depth. But I think, I think as a writer or just as a person, I, I, I was favourably predisposed emotionally to the idea of being a psychologist and, you know, counselling and being interested in people. And I think, I think it was just that that was something inherent in that we probably all have as writers where we're interested in the human condition. And so... It wasn't necessarily because I'd done psych, but probably um, because I was that way, I, I um, naturally inclined towards towards psych. It did get me a good job in IT, I have to say. I applied for a job. Um, I applied for a job. This, this is a long time ago, before PCs. We were selling big mainframes. Um, when I applied for a job with a big multinational computer company, they were kind of in 
this is really weird, but they were really in awe that I'd done a psychology degree. And so they gave me the job and I had never used a computer in my life. I, the only keyboard I had was my typewriter, not even a, not even a computer. So um, it really was, <laughs> it, it was actually a really good thing to have in the, but that was the era. It was the early eighties when people still didn't quite understand what, what university was all about and what, definitely what writers were doing or computers. Anyway. Mm. Okay. I, I gotta say, just going back to the failure thing, I do feel like I'm in a very good company now because I, I did pass high school. I did okay in that. And then I decided that, um, this is again a uh, young person's thinking and only a young person could think like this i was going to prove to everyone just how smart i was by studying aeronautical engineering um which i got into and i proved to everyone just how smart i was when i failed miserably um not even like just failed but massively failed half oh, really? of subjects and barely passed the others yeah but i i do think that um for me it was a lesson about doing what you actually enjoy and i think that's something mm. that um that certainly comes through the stories that i've read from uh, from yourselves is that you definitely enjoy what you do. So even if you may have, you know, failed law or failed uh, high school and everything, uh, one thing I do love about writing is it's such, you know, it's got issues with, you know, gatekeeping in some areas, but it really in a lot of ways is an egalitarian uh, profession. You don't need a particular background or you don't need a particular look to be a writer. You just need to be able to put the right words on a page. Absolutely. And Absolutely. And, you know, it's very similar to the film world because some, um, at Supernova, um, a couple of weeks ago, I, I went and sat in on a session with um, some film producers and um, film directors and writers. And um, the audience asked and said, you know, is doing a diploma or a degree in film and TV, is that really important for getting into the film industry? And they went, no, no, nobody, nobody, you know, who, who in the old days ever had a degree? You know, you just learn, you get in somewhere by making the coffee or whatever and yep. working your way up and learning, learning your craft, you know, and I think all, you know, the three of us, we've kind of, we, we started with nothing basically because we weren't writers to start off with and slowly, slowly, slowly we, we learned or are still learning our craft, you know, it doesn't matter about, you know, any kind of university degree or whatever. Mm. Yeah. Mm, I agree. You know, I think, I feel like that, that's a pretty good note to end, to end on. So I'll just give up one more question. And this is, um, you know, Danny B, the usual host, she's got this one question that I always love to hear the answer to. So I'm going to steal it for, um, for you two as well. And that is, why do you write? Then you go first. <laughs> I, was, I was hoping you'd come up with something really good, Josh. Um, uh, because I, I'm not good enough to be a rock, rock star. <laughs> I gotta say that is not an answer that I've heard on the podcast before. There you go. That's certainly unique. Yeah, that's the truth. Uh, You're not going to embellish on that. No, no. no. <laughs> okay, I I, it, I write to understand myself. That's for me. Everything I've written, even all my nonfiction, everything is about understanding myself or trying to, and hopefully other people can see themselves in that in that writing as well. That's, that's a really nice way to look at it. And we've had a couple of people do different uh, variations of that, but I should have expected um, since we've just been discussing word economy um, to get all of that in such a succinct statement. And I've really enjoyed the conversation with both of you as well. So thank you very much. Um, really appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, until next time, I'll uh, okay. look forward to reading uh, The Crying Forest and uh, getting a couple of your books, Josh, for the kids.